Second Kings four eighteen through thirty seven. When the child had grown, he went out one day to his father among the reapers, and he said to his father, "Oh, my head, my head!" The father said to his servant, "Carry him to his mother." And when he had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child sat on her lap till noon, and then he died. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God, and shut the door behind him and went out. Then she called to her husband and said, Send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys, that I may quickly go to the man of God and come back again. And he said, Why will you go to him today? It is neither new moon nor Sabbath. She said, All is well. Then she saddled the donkey, and she said to her servant, Urge the animal on. Do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. When the man of God saw her coming, he said to to Gehazi, his servant, Look, there is the Shunammite. Run at once to meet her and say to her, Is all well with you? Is all well with your husband? Is all well with the child? And she answered, All is well. And when she came to the mountain to the man of God, she caught hold of his feet, and Gehazi came to push her away. But the man of God said, Leave her alone, for she is in bitter distress, and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. Then she said, Did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, Do not deceive me? He said to Gehazi, Tie up your garment and take my staff in your hand and go. If you meet anyone, do not greet him, and if anyone greets you, do not reply, and lay my staff on the face of the child. Then the mother of the child said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So he arose and followed her. Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the face of the child, but there was no sound or sign of life. Therefore he returned to meet him and told him, The child has not awakened. When Elisha came to the house, he saw the child lying dead on his bed. So he went in and shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. Then he went up and lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, and his hands on his hands. And as he stretched himself upon him, the flesh of the child became warm. Then he got up again and walked once back and forth in the house and went up and stretched himself upon him. The child sneezed seven times and the child opened his eyes. Then he summoned Gehazi and said, Call this Shunammite. So he called her. And when she came to him, he said, Pick up your son. She came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. Then she picked up her son and went out. The word of the Lord. Hey, everyone. It's me again. Welcome uh, to the Painted Door. Welcome to what is now the third week of the Easter Tide season, never mind what the weather outside seems to indicate. The light has come. It is spring in the church. Resurrection is upon us and celebration is in order. I can feel that in the room, actually. I can feel you all feeling my excitement. Easter was never meant to be only a one-day celebration in the church. It was always intended historically to be a 50-day celebration of resurrection in the church, stretching from Easter Sunday all the way until Pentecost Sunday, those 50 days. And this year, Pentecost Sunday happens to land on May 20. So we'll be remaining in that Easter spirit, that Easter celebration, 
shaking our fist at the sky from now until May 20. We're actually in week three now of this seven-week season, and the way in which, the manner in which our church is remaining focused on that resurrection theme of Easter Sunday is to work our way through all nine of the stories recorded in Scripture of a person being raised from the dead. Counting Jesus, there are nine such accounts in Scripture, and each of these accounts offer a different way for us to glimpse something about the character of God. What all nine of these accounts share in common is that they deliver clearly to us what is God's plan for death, and that is to invade it with his life. Everything that we see around us in this world is dying, it's dead, and yet all of that death and dying is not how God initially created it. When God created the world, he fashioned it in life. He fashioned it impregnated with life upon life. God is the giver of life. He's a sustainer of life. God is himself the source of life. He is the only life game in town, and there is no death in his being. And so when he created the world, he created it in his life. It is our folly that has brought death into the world. It's the way that we have mistreated each other, both collectively and individually, that has produced all of this carnage and ruin and hurt and death that we see in the world. It's our self-loathing and our self-aggrandizement, more specifically, that leads to all kinds of death and ruin in the world. And so we see as consequence for the ways that we mistreat each other and mistreat ourselves, the death of marriages, the death of family relationships, the death of friendships, and ultimately the death of all of us. And all of this is always going on all around us. We are surrounded by death and dying as a result of our introduction of folly and sin into the world. And God means to meet us in those dead and dying places with his life. God is so committed to life that he would even invade our death with it. This is why Christians historically have paid such careful attention to suffering and death. Because we can expect God to be invading those places. We can anticipate in faith that God will be meeting us uniquely and especially in those places of death and dying, in the places where things seem most hopeless, most lost, when a marriage seems irredeemable, when a family relationship seems broken beyond redemption, when a friendship has completely fizzled. Those are the places to anticipate God meeting us. That is where God means to invade our brokenness and folly with his life. And so Christians are looking for him to do that. Christians are hanging around graveyards, as it were, expecting the father of this world to reanimate dead things and to reanimate even the dead things in us. 
to restore us to the glory that he intends for his creation. This is God's restoration conspiracy, if you will. He's conspiring to invade everything that we've given up on with new life. Conspiring to restore those things that seem most hopeless and lost. And in our story for today, this restoration conspiracy unfolds through the prophet Elisha. Now, last week, we looked at a story that centered around the prophet Elijah. Elisha is Elijah's successor. So Elijah trained and anointed Elisha to follow in his footsteps as the prophet of God in the northern kingdom of Israel. Elijah trained Elisha to be the next Elijah. Fair enough. (laughs) You might be marginally confused. Uh, But Elisha is now the prophet of God, and we pick up the story early on in what would be a six-decade tenure for him of prophetically leading the people of the northern kingdom of Israel. You might remember from last week, I mentioned that the kingdom of Israel has been divided at this point into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom is disconnected from Jerusalem. It's not near Jerusalem geographically. And so it's disconnected from the temple, which is the center of religious and spiritual life for the Jewish people. For Jewish people to not have the temple in the ancient world leaves them wandering. It leaves them with no religious center. And so for many people in the northern kingdom, the prophetic ministry of Elisha was the only way in which they might receive instruction or a word from God for the entirety of their lives. And so his ministry is crucially important in the northern kingdom. And as we pick up the story today, he is at this point early on in his prophetic ministry living in a place known as Mount Carmel, which famously was the site of his predecessor Elijah's showdown with the false prophets of Baal. Elijah famously had a showdown with the prophets of Baal, a public spectacle wherein the God of Israel, Yahweh, made himself known as the one true God and put to shame the false prophets of false gods. Elisha is dwelling in that holy place, now having received that same prophetic mantle of Yahweh from his predecessor Elijah, but he has occasion to travel from Mount Carmel on a fairly regular basis, traveling throughout the northern kingdom to minister God's word to the people there. He's sort of, in a sense, a traveling temple. He's a tabernacle of the Spirit of God in the ancient world, bringing the Spirit of God to the people wherever they may be. And it so happens that his travels bring him to the town of Shunem. And he meets a woman there, a wealthy woman there, who shows him kindness, provides lodging for him, welcomes him into her home, provides a meal for him. And she convinces her husband, actually, that they should build a special room for Elisha so that whenever he is traveling along that way, he can stop there and be refreshed and be cared for. And so they do build this special room on the roof of their home. They furnish it with a bed and a lamp and a table so that Elisha can stop in for a meal and a sleep when he travels along 
the way. And Elisha, of course, is filled with gratitude at this kindness, having received this kindness from this woman. And so after some time, he approaches her and asks her what he can do for her as a show of gratitude. And she politely declines any show of gratitude. Elisha suggests that perhaps he could put in a good word for her with the region's ruler. She says, no, I won't be needing that. My life is simple. I'm content as I am, content to merely serve the prophet of God and the purposes of God. I don't need anything in return. Well, Elisha is undeterred. And so he seeks the counsel of his servant Gehazi and asks his servant, what could we do to bless this Shunammite woman, to express our gratitude to this Shunammite woman. And the servant Gehazi points out that this woman has never had children and that her husband is quite old. And so Elisha calls the Shunammite woman to him and prophesies to her that in one year's time, she will have a son. Now, the woman who wanted no expression of thanks in the first place is quite reticent to receive this announcement of good news from the prophet of God. And her response, recorded in the scriptures, is, don't deceive me, Elisha. She doesn't dare hope to believe in the truth of this prophecy lest she face crushing disappointment. She's holding herself off from believing that the prophet's words could be true. But a year later, just as the prophet said, she is holding a baby boy in her arms. Now you can imagine, you're left to imagine, because the scriptures give us no account, what her joy must have been, having given up on the prospect of having children and resigned herself to merely caring for the prophet of God and serving the mission of God in some way, now to be holding her first child in her arms. Many young couples in our church have experienced this afresh. They have fresh memories. You have fresh memories in your minds of what it is to hold your first child in your hands, to hold this tender life, this person that is made of you. Uh, when I remember holding my first child in my hands, or really any of my four children in my hands, the visceral memory that comes back flooding into my memory is this feeling in my chest that my heart would be expanding too much for my frame, that it might burst out of the center of me, because when you have a child, you are biologically disposed by the goodness of God to have the love in you expand. Your heart grows. You have more capacity to love than you knew you ever did before. And so certainly this woman, this Shunammite woman, is experiencing that as she treasures this new life in her hands, and he is precious to her. And then the scriptures tell us that the boy grows. And as he grows... He reaches an age when he can join his father's reapers in the field and reap grain alongside of them. And it happens one afternoon as he is reaping grain 
with his father's workers in the field, he suddenly is overcome with a terrible headache, excruciating headache. And his father instructs one of the servants to take the boy back to his mother in their home. And the servant does so, and the boy is brought to his mother, and the Shunammite woman pulls her son up onto her lap and holds him there in hopes that he might recover. But by noon, he has died. And the love that she had for him is in grave danger of dying with him. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him and went out. Then she called to her husband and said, Send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys, that I may quickly go to the man of God and come back. And he said, Why will you go to him today? It is neither new moon nor Sabbath. She said, All is well. What a strange little story we have here. This woman has no intention of acknowledging her son's death. She has no intention of resigning herself to the fact of her son's death. Though she has just seen him die, pay attention to her actions immediately following that. There is no grief. There is no moment for tears. She takes the boy immediately up into the upper room and lays him on the bed that was put there for the man of God. She goes and lays her son in the place of the man that she knows can be a source of life. In the place of the man that she knows has been a source of life in her family. She is concocting in her mind something other than the death of her son. She's holding on to some hope, however false or half-cocked that may be, she is not resigning herself to the fact of her son's death. And then she saddles the donkeys and heads straight for Elisha, heads straight for this man who was the source of this life in her life. And when her husband very reasonably asks her, why are you traveling to Elisha today? Her husband, not knowing that the boy's illness has worsened and that he has died, assuming that if his wife is traveling, perhaps that the boy is well back at home. When her husband asks, she responds only, all is well. In other words, I will not be submitting my half-baked plan to your scrutiny. Thank you very much. I have a mission, I have a single-minded mission that I'm on, and I don't dare share it with you lest you talk me into reality. I will not be accepting the reality that my son has died, and I will not be welcoming anyone into the story who might lead me there. I am going to insist that there is another outcome it's almost as though she's embarrassed about how half-baked her plan is, unwilling to share it even with her husband, treasuring it more closely than even that marital bond. Have ever you known a moment like this where you are so committed to some perhaps ill-conceived mission, 
so desperate and single-minded in some particular trajectory that you dare not invite the scrutiny of anyone else into it. So convinced, perhaps, that a particular cause you have in mind is right and holy that you resist having anyone talk sense into you. You don't want to share it lest you be mocked, lest someone think you're nuts, lest someone talk you into the fact that you sound crazy. You simply want to chase after something with reckless abandon and have no one else speak into that whatsoever. This is the mother on TV's strangest, Stranger Things, yes? Uh, for those of you who may watch She's convinced that her boy is speaking to her through the lights. And she is not interested in anyone pointing out that she's crazy. Our old friend, Winona Ryder. This is me and my family when we were convinced that we ought to sell our home and quit our jobs and move to Chicago. We were not interested in anyone's input directing us that that might be a little crazy. We're pushing that aside. We have a mission. We have a single-minded directive. We know that we are meant to do this. And so we're going to do it, irrespective of what others may say. The Shunammite woman, it's almost as though natural time is suspended in her mind. Her son isn't really dead if only she can make it to the man of God, live in this false reality a little bit longer before cooler heads talk her back into what is plainly real. As she neared Elisha's tent at Mount Carmel, he saw her coming from a distance, and he told his servant Gehazi, run at once to meet her and say to her, is all well with you? Is all well with your husband? Is all well with the child? And she answered, all is well. Again, not willing to subject her faith to the scrutiny, even of the servant of the man of God, even Elisha's servant. Again, it's as though she's embarrassed. She knows that her mission is crazy. She knows she has no business going about this mission, that it makes no sense in the rational world, that she's disconnected herself from the way that the world works the normal way that the world works, which is that things die and they stay dead. She's believing in something other than that, something irrational. She's rushing out for a miracle. She knows that it makes absolutely no sense to leave a dead boy at home and go chasing some fantasy called resurrection. But what choice does she have? Desperation is driving her. Desperation is driving her into this irrational place to make this irrational plea before the man of God. And she finally reaches Elisha, and when she gets to him, now her madness, now her crazy mission and desperation can no longer conceal itself. And the scripture says that she throws herself at Elijah's feet and begins to clutch his ankles And Gehazi steps in to push her off, knowing how bizarre this scene is. The servant of the man of God is sure that this woman has lost her mind. But Elijah says, no, leave her. 
Scriptures tell us that Elisha saw her distress and he receives her desperation here in a way that she had feared no one would. He welcomes this kind of desperation. Then she said to Elisha, Did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, Do not deceive me? This is the anguish of a mother who has lost her child. And Elisha knows in that instant that the boy has died. And so he tells his servant Gehazi to travel to Shunem immediately and to place his staff on the face of the boy. He tells his servant, as you go, if anyone greets you, don't reply and do not greet anyone as you go. In other words, Elisha is being carried into the madness of this mission. Elisha, like the Shunammite woman, knows that this mission cannot hold up to anyone's scrutiny. If anyone is given opportunity to speak into this mission, they will talk them back to reality. They will talk them out of it. There is no reason for Elisha to send his servant to Shunam with a stick. A boy has died. Grief is in order. Tears are in order. Funeral arrangements are to be made. What is this fool's errand that this woman is on? And why is Elisha humoring her and participating in it? He tells his servant to go and to lay the staff on the boy's face. Then the mother of the child said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, Elisha, I will not leave you. So he arose and followed her. The Shunammite mother will have none of it. You won't be sending your servant with me back to my boy, Elisha. You are the man of God. You are the one who gave life to my family. You will be traveling with me. I insist on it. The full madness of the woman is now on display. And she doesn't care. Desperation has driven her now to no longer conceal the embarrassing exuberance of her faith. This insistence on some other reality. That some other reality than death may yet exist, that her boy may yet live. She was too embarrassed to tell her husband. She was too embarrassed to tell Gehazi. But Elisha, he's the man of God she's come to plead with, and she has no choice but to let him see all of her madness. And so Elisha is compelled to travel with her, and when he arrives at her home in Shunem, He goes to the upper room. He stretches himself across the child. He prays to the Lord. And the boy is revived in a fit of sneezing. The Shunammite woman has her miracle. Life has invaded the death of her son. And she came and fell at Elisha's feet, bowing to the ground. Then she picked up her son and went out. It may be hard for some to see this, but we are all this Shunammite woman. We are all this desperate for a miracle. 
We are all as caught in the snare of death as she is. We are all as needy as a mother who has just lost her child. All of us, at some point in our life, perhaps this has already taken place, will face that haunting reality of death and loss. It's coming for us all. We all can relate and empathize with the desperation that this woman feels. The invitation of this story is to plead for mercy, no matter how foolish that may seem. No matter how foolish that may make you look, it's the invitation to live out of that desperation into a desperate kind of faith. Into a kind of faith that insists that there's some other reality than the reality that we are all presently faced with. That there's some other way that death can end than in mere loss and death. Our modern world tells us that doubt is more authentic than faith. Our modern world tells us, be careful about going all in on anything. It's safer to play it cool. It's safer to reserve judgment. It's safer to not cast yourself fully onto one thing, to put all your eggs in one basket. Our modern world tells us to hedge our bets to diversify our portfolio, to be sure perhaps that we're friends with lots of different potential saviors, lots of different potential gods, that if this particular God doesn't work out, we have lots of other kinds of saviors to fall back on. Our modern world would mock anyone who would go all in, anyone who would put their full confidence in one God alone, Anyone who would be certain, driven by desperation to a kind of desperate certainty for this one Savior to be the only rescuer of our lives. It's out of fashion to go all in. But desperate mothers have no time for fashion. And neither should we. We are all this Shunammite woman. We are all this Desperate fashion need not concern us. There is one source of life, and we are desperate for him. Dependence on Jesus, you should know, will never be in fashion. It's too pathetic. It's too weak. It's too irrational. It will always be mocked by the order of this world. As foolishly optimistic, pie in the sky, head in the sand, a crutch for weak people. You name the pejorative. But Jesus said to Lazarus' sister Martha before raising her brother from the dead, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. 
and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Do you believe that Jesus is invading every dead thing in us and in our world with his life? If you do, then go all in. If you do, then confess your sins to one another. If you do, open your heart in risky and desperate faith. Plead for mercy. Turn to the only one who has beaten death. Live in that desperate longing for his blessing in your life. Cast all of your cares on him. Let go of every other false god and false savior that you would fall back on. Loosen your grip on all those false things. Depend on him fully with everything you are, no matter how foolish that makes you look. And if you don't believe that Jesus is the Christ, if you don't believe that his life is invading our death, only hear this. He will be there when you need him. He is not holding your faithlessness against you. He does not require a strong and well-sorted understanding to come to him. Desperation will do. So if and when you are desperate and needy, you can do no better than to saddle the donkeys and make the ride to Jesus. He is the source of life, and he will have you. He will have us all. He welcomes needy people to himself. He meets us in that desperate place. He does not mock our simple, irrational faith. My favorite childhood author, Mark Twain, once famously wrote, Everything human is pathetic. He meant that as a jab against anyone who would imbue humanity with some higher purpose. But what Mr. Twain, what Mr. Clemens respectfully failed to see is that our highest purpose is actually in our desperate need. We were made to desperately need Jesus. And there's nothing more pathetic or more lovely. Let's pray. Father, thank you for receiving us when we come to you in need. Thank you for receiving us when we come to you with dead things and plead mercy. Thank you for Jesus and his life and the way that he invades our death with it. Father, we ask that you would send your spirit into this church, that you would make us Easter people, people who insist on some other reality, people who don't 
bend to the dull mind of this world and pretend that death is the end of the story, but instead imagine what it is that you are doing in faith. Lord, fill us with hope as we catch that vision. Lead us into the mission of this Shunammite woman. Take us on rides to Jesus. Lord, help us along the way. We ask it in his name. Amen.